Good morning. My name is Dave Kim. I'm the pastor of Community Life and Discipleship here at Cornerstone, and I have the privilege of preaching God's Word with, to you this morning. Uh, so if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn with me to John chapter 18. We'll be reading from verse 1 to 11. John chapter 18, verse 1 to 11. If you don't have your Bibles, they'll be up here on the screen for you. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus, Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, and they said Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in his sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, we do pray <clears throat> this morning that you will reorient our hearts to you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you will show us our sin, but show us the grace of Christ. And as we see Christ, Lord, may we also fall at his feet in worship and adoration. Be with us this morning, Lord, and bless the preaching and hearing of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, in preparation for Easter, <clears throat> we're taking a break from our Joshua sermon series to focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And particularly today, we're looking at the arrest of Jesus and the trial of Jesus. Now, gallons of ink have been spilled from both Christian and non-Christian sides, trying to present different aspects of what happened on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Particularly in the 1990s, mid-1990s, there was a man by the name of Albert Schweitzer who argued that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, we get a glimpse of his true self. Namely, that Jesus is not God, but he's a helpless man whose teachings and behavior brought about tragic consequences eventually leading to his death. In 2013, the number one New York Times bestseller book was a book called Zealot. It was written by Riza Aslan, which expanded on Schweitzer's take on Jesus, that Jesus was not God, but rather a man who rocked the boat a little bit too much and met a tragic fate. Now, one of the main reasons that allows Schweitzer and, and Riza Aslan and many of their friends to discredit the eyewitness accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, is because of their perception of the divine and the su supernatural, meaning they had a problem with Jesus being God and how things ended up. If Jesus is really God, things would have gone really differently. If the supernatural is really possible, then the idea of a God who is vulnerable and apprehensible is just not believable. 
But the errors that the error that skeptics like Riza and liberals like Schweitzer make is that Jesus' arrest does not divorce his humanity from his divinity. Jesus was not powerless. He was not caught off guard by Judas. He was not outmaneuvered by the authorities. John tells us that a true display of God's divinity is that he can use opposition, enemies, and evil to still bring about his plans. There was once an elderly lady who lived in the countryside on her own, and her neighbors knew that she was a Christian because she had this habit of sitting in the porch during the day and just shouting out her prayers. Her closest neighbor, who was not a believer in God, found her prayers annoying but particularly nonsensical. They were not rational. One day, her neighbor heard the lady that heard his, uh, the lady pray for food, for she had run out of food, and she was praying to God for groceries. Seeing this as an opportunity to disprove that God does not exist, he went ahead and dropped off groceries later that evening and put it right outside her door. The next morning, when she discovered the pile of groceries, she burst out into prayer, praising God. Thanks be to God. Oh, thanks be to God that he has heard my prayers. He has heard and answered my prayers. Aha! exclaimed the neighbor. I delivered your groceries, not God. What do you have to say now? To which she continued loudly in her prayer. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. He has answered my prayer for food. And he made the atheist pay for it. (laughs) Now, in our passage today, this morning, John presents to us a picture of Jesus who is not helpless. He's not a victim of his circumstances. But rather, John wants us to know that Jesus is in full control as you would expect any omnipotent God to be. So here's the main point that I would like to make this morning from our passage. Jesus willingly gives, his true, gives us his true self so that in his love we are tightly secured and surely transformed to be like him. Jesus willingly gives us his true self so that in his love we are tightly secured and surely transformed to be like him. I want to consider three points to support our main passage this morning. The, I want to look at the person, I want to look at the claim, and I, will look, I want to look at the mission. The person, the claim, and the mission. So first, the person. John is not the only one who, who, tells, about, who tells us about the arrest of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke also include in their accounts of the Gospels, Jesus' arrest. But out of the four accounts, John retells the story with a particular emphasis, and that is this, that Jesus is in charge. If you look at verse 1, it is Jesus who goes out into the garden, knowing that Judas had left the dinner earlier in order to betray him, to betray him meaning that Jesus wanted to be found. He wasn't hiding. He wasn't hoping to do reverse psychology here with his captors, but rather he's willingly delivering himself to his enemies. In fact, John gives us a very neat detail that none of the other gospel writers give us, and that is this, that this band of people were carrying torches and lanterns. Now, why would you carry torches and lanterns when you're looking for someone? Because you're expecting that anybody on Jesus' shoes, you would hide. You would run away. And you would hide. And John tells us, no, 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 no. Jesus is the one who lays himself down. Jesus is in full control. 
And just to make things even more clear, in verse 4, John says this. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, ran away, hid, prepared his followers to defend. No, he came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Now, why is John so focused with wanting people to get a glimpse of the type of person Jesus is? Someone who is not afraid to lay down his life. Someone who did not run away and did not try to avoid suffering. Someone who surrendered to the complete will of the Father. And here's why. Because John wants to bring out a contrast between the person Jesus really is and the person we people make him out to be. And he does so by including a very odd, strange question and, which Jesus poses to his captors. And, the, and here's the question. Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? Now, this is an odd and weird question. This is not a Jedi mind trick, you know, where Jesus is before his captors and he says, Whom do you seek? These are not the people you're looking for. He's not trying to trick them. Jesus is not asking this because he's naive. Verse 4 tells us that he knew they came for him. But rather, this question, whom do you seek, is meant to expose what kind of picture of Jesus you hold in your mind and your heart. In chapter 18, you find that everybody wants to find Jesus. Everybody has a reason to seek after Jesus because they all have a different picture of who, uh, what kind of person he is. For example, for the soldiers, Jesus of Nazareth was a political threat. He was a movement leader. He's a zealot who's going to create a lot more work, so take care of him now before later. For the disciples, Jesus of Nazareth was a political figure, someone who will turn things around and bring in a new age by overthrowing the Roman Empire. For Judas, Jesus was quick cash. He was a bounty. It was an opportunity to make some extra cash on the side. Later in this chapter, when Jesus is brought before Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, Jesus is a heretic. They wanted to find him because he's a danger to the purity and peace of Judaism and religion. In the gospel account of Luke, when Jesus is brought before Herod, Jesus was a street magician. Herod was bored. He wanted to see all these miracles that people were talking about. For Pontius Pilate, who, who condemned Jesus to death, Jesus of Nazareth is a lunatic. He's a crazy man who thinks he's a king. For the crowd that chose the release of Barabbas over Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth is a liar and a coward. If Jesus is not willing to pick up a sword, then give us Barabbas, who's led armies before. And you might be tempted to think, you might be tempted to think, that we all in this room, we have a proper picture of Jesus. We know who Jesus really is. And we live out our lives in the, in the way that we understand perfectly who Jesus is. Because after all, we all seek after Jesus that is spoken, that is spoken of in Scripture. Edward J. Blum, who is a professor of history at San Diego State University, and Paul Harvey, they co-wrote an article called, Whatever Happened to Hippie Jesus?, And their goal was to analyze the many ways in which American culture, specifically, has reinterpreted Jesus from decade to decade. And what they observe is that people have a tendency to adopt an image of Jesus depending on their personal agendas and matters of interest. So, for example, in the 1950s, during the Cold War, Jesus was portrayed as a pro-capitalist. 
Jesus is not a communist. By the 1970s, the glorious years of discos, ponchos, and chokers. I had to look that up, by the way. Um, But by the 1970s, in order to lighten the mood, the authors observed that for the first time, Jesus was portrayed with an emphasis on playfulness. People began relating to Jesus as their buddy, or Jesus was that friend who got in trouble with the authorities. And they conclude with this remarkable insight. The present-day Americans prefer to picture a Jesus who's lenient, sometimes weak, sometimes strong, but mostly a Christ who often helps the kids learn something. Now, these authors are just merely agreeing with what Scripture has been teaching all along, that many seek Jesus, but because of our own sinful hearts, we have a tendency to create a narrow picture, a small picture of the person we want Jesus to be. So an important question to ask is this. How do you know what kind of picture of Jesus you currently possess? What's the mirror test here? Here's one practical suggestion for you to consider. Here's the mirror test. What do you most often go to Jesus for prayer? What do you most often go to Jesus for prayer? If someone who's never heard of Jesus ever in their life were to read your prayers to him on a log, on a documented log, what kind of person would they conclude Jesus to be? For some of you, Jesus is your primary care physician. Now, there's nothing wrong with bringing to him your physical needs for healings, but if we were, but if we were to put a dollar in a, between two jars, one for every time you pray for Jesus for his glory and one for your physical healings, which jar would hold more money? On a related note, when people ask you for prayer requests, what's your go-to prayer request? For others of you, Jesus is just an insurance agent. When things go wrong in life, like a good neighbor, Jesus is there. Your most often reasons for bending the knee in prayers for life circumstances to get fixed or for things to go well. Particularly, perhaps for some of you, Jesus is just your ticket in case death comes unexpectedly or eventually. I mean, who talks to their insurance agent every day? How are you doing? What did you do today? This is what I did, right? <laughs> How's the family? You don't talk to insurance every day. You only talk to them when you want to figure out if you're what? Covered. Maybe Jesus is your life coach. He's there to guide you through life so you can accomplish all your dreams, make great financial investments and choices, and make the best of your retirement plan. So you squeeze life out of it. So most of your prayer life is asking Jesus about the next big thing. Where should my family move? Which house should we get? Which school should we send our children to? Who do I marry? Which hobbies do I take up? How about this one? Have you reduced Jesus into a mere moral teacher? Jesus set the bar, so he's the example of morality, and you try your best to live your life and to measure up. So when you go to him in prayer, your prayers are filled with Petitions of virtue, strength, love, patience, joy, kindness, gentleness for others. But what's really missing in your prayers is repentance. Church, if repentance is not a daily habit in your prayers, can I suggest maybe you only see Jesus as a moral teacher who can help you create a righteousness for yourself. If you're a parent, especially, have you made out Jesus to be a spiritual nanny? He's just a person who can hopefully help your kids behave and learn how to be nice. 
Let me offer one more. Maybe it's not so much the topic of your prayers that reveal what kind of person you make Jesus out to be, but the lack of prayers instead. We make time for the gym. We make time for TV. We make time to hang out with our friends, but we never make time to pray to Jesus. If that's the case, brothers and sisters, if you never block out time in your personal life to pray to Jesus, can I suggest that perhaps you, you have a... You're, the person and picture of Jesus that you have is not a real person at all. Church, whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? What a challenging question Jesus poses to not just his captors, but to all of his followers and to you and me this morning. It's a question worth asking every day. It's possible to seek after Jesus for things you, you're after rather than for the person he really is. But the story goes on. Once the soldiers respond that they're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus completely shatters any image on their minds by making a great claim. So let's look at our second point, the great claim. Look with me at verse 6. Look with me at Jesus' answer in verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Who fell to the ground? The soldiers fell to the ground. Who fell to the ground? The Pharisees fell to the ground. Who fell to the ground? Judas fell to the ground. Why is this significant? And this is, this is so beautiful. John is giving us a picture that when we come face to face with Jesus, not only do religious people become unable to stand before him, but the irreligious and the nominal faith can't bear to stand before his presence. Now let me unpack this a little bit further and explain why that is. In our English translation of the Bible, which are excellent and reliable in helping us grow in our faith, there's all, but there, there's always room for improvement. Because when you read this verse in the Greek, the personal pronoun, he, is not there. Translators added the he, so it makes grammatical sense in English. And it's not a mistake, it's just, it just makes things a little bit harder to see. So when you read Jesus' answer without the personal pronoun, then you can see a little bit more clearly as to why the soldiers, the Pharisees, and even Judas fall to the ground. And that's this. When the soldiers reply that they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus' reply to them is, I am. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is taking the divine name upon himself. Jesus is taking the divine name reserved only for God in the Old Testament and showing a glimpse of his glory. Now, have you ever had someone, maybe one of your kids, try to pinch your biceps, and at the last second, what do you do? You flex. And if you're like me, you flex a little bit harder than you would like to, but you give it all, all you got. Jesus, in Jesus' answer, we see that he flexes a little here, as if to say, you have no idea who the person you've been looking for really is. And this claim, I am, is a tremendous claim, which is frequently exemplified in the Old Testament when people come face to face with the holiness and the terrifying glory of God. See, the claim is basically saying that all of life is under Jesus' rule. All of life is under Jesus' power and authority. Everything is for Jesus, it's about Jesus, through Jesus, and nothing can stand in His way. The I am claim means that God is on a different level. 
We are created, we grow tired, we grow hungry, we make mistakes while God is I am. He is uncreated, he is infinite, he's independent from anything, and he's perfect and he never makes a mistake. For example, Moses in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14, he's overwhelmed with fear when God approaches him and tells him to confront the Pharaoh of the strongest army in the known world at the time. And when Moses says that there's no way he'll be able to stand against the glory of Pharaoh, what does God say to him? I am. Pharaoh won't be able to stand against me. Later in Moses' life, when he asks God to show him his glory, God denies his request and says that you can't withstand my glory. It would utterly destroy you. So instead, he shows him his back as he passes by. In Ezekiel, when the prophet Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord, he's trying his best to describe it. His description is all over the place. And this is true. Scholars agree, have been puzzled for centuries on what to make of his description. And the consensus is that here's a poor man who's trying to use human language, and he's so overwhelmed by this glory of the Lord that he's doing quite a poor job. And it's hard to make sense of. The same thing happens with Isaiah in chapter 6. And my personal favorite with Peter, when he meets Jesus for the first time, and he's overwhelmed with Jesus' holiness that makes him say, depart from me, for I am a sinner. Depart from me, for you are holy and I am evil. Scripture is consistent in teaching that when anyone has a right understanding of God, when you encounter Him, when you encounter His holiness and His glory, they become so overwhelming. And it's natural that you would either fall on your face in fear and trembling, or you fall on your face in fear and humbling. Because coming into the presence of God reveals, as Paul says in Romans, that we've all sinned and become keenly aware of how inadequate we are. And nobody can stand before him. So you have to wonder, church, if in your relationship with God, there isn't an ounce of fear anywhere, there isn't an ounce of fear in your prayers, there isn't an ounce of fear in your obedience, there isn't an ounce of fear when you parent your children in the Lord, there isn't an ounce of obedience, there isn't an ounce, there isn't an ounce of fear when you come through the doors to worship him on Sundays. You have to wonder whether you have a picture, you have a proper picture of Jesus, or you just have a mock prop Jesus. See, the only people in the story who did not fall before Jesus are the high priest and the and Pilate. Sue Erickson, who's the daughter of the renowned scholar in, in psychology, Eric Erickson. Eric Erickson was a pioneer in the world of psychology, especially parenting, right um, shortly after Freud. She recounts what it was like to be the daughter of a man who the world seemed to admire. And among many things, she insightfully shares that the older she got and the more exposure and understanding she had of her father's fame and prestige, she recounts this, quote, It has sometimes been a source of great pride to be Eric Erickson's daughter, but more often it has overwhelmed my sense of myself, been demoralizing, diminishing, even paralyzing. My father's fame is always there to be reckoned with, a powerful force in my life. Now, Sue's observation is quite relatable, but later in her many years of trying to understand her father as a person, she realized something far more insightful, and that's this, that human beings 
have a constant habit of feeling inadequate, hypocritical, and insecure because we're always measuring ourselves or something comes in front of us, crosses our path with this ideal of perfection, a greater glory, something that's greater than us. And when that happens, our hearts become insecure and they become anxious. One of my favorite philosophers of all time, Taylor Swift, and singers of all time, at the height of her career, she plunged into a deep depression and she shares this insight. She says this, if I don't beat everything I've ever done, it's seen as a colossal failure. There's this need that before greatness, we become undone. Sue Erickson and Taylor Swift are right. Even before the presence of our own great accomplishments or human accomplishments, we can feel small. We can feel inadequate and insecure. Now, if this is how human glory can affect other people, how much more would God's infinite glory shake the core of our identities? Now, what's the point I'm trying to make? If this brief display of Jesus' glory in the garden is able to floor the religious moral teachers, the ferocious soldiers of honor, of integrity, and even the most rebellious half-hearted person, then, the, then there isn't a single person in this room or on this earth who can hope to stand before Jesus' holiness based on your moral, professional, or logical credentials. In other words, nothing you do, nothing you are, nothing you could ever be can give you the grounds to stand before the coming glory of Jesus. Now, imagine with me for a second. You're here on this night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Put yourselves in the shoes of Jesus' disciples on this night. You just watched your master collapse a band of soldiers, which scholars agree could have been anywhere between 150 to 200 men. And as you're watching this, if you're a follower of Jesus, what would you want him to do next? Wouldn't you want, wouldn't it make sense that now is the time, time to march into Rome? Now is the time to show our enemies what we're capable of. Now is the time to rule and bring justice. None can touch Jesus. No sword can strike him. No shackles bind him. No army can stand against him. This is the Jesus that I want. Right? Jesus, keep it going. And maybe you would have been just as shocked to see that Jesus turns himself in. The unapproachable a second ago becomes approachable. The glorious one who shines brighter than the sun is restrained. The king of kings is sentenced to death. This Jesus once again defies your picture of him. Why would he do this? Why would he do this? John tells us that Jesus had a mission, which leads us to our third and last point. The mission of Jesus. In verse 9, Jesus tells us why he lets himself be arrested. And he says this, This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Now, on the surface, on the surface, it looks like Jesus is fulfilling what he had said earlier in his prayer in chapter 17, that the disciples God gave to him, he will not let them be taken captive, that Jesus is negotiating the freedom with the authorities to take him for his disciples. But scholars point out that if Jesus' main mission was to protect the physical well-being of his disciples at the cost of his life, then verse 11 makes no sense. In verse 11, 
Jesus mentions the cup of the Father. Now, what is the cup of the Father? The cup of the Father in the Old Testament is usually a symbol for God's punishment and wrath for all who fall short to meet His standards of holiness. In other words, the cup was God's justice towards sin and evil, which was being built up for hundreds of years to be poured out against anyone who's broken His commands. I mean, have you ever ridden in the back of your parents' car after you've done something wrong? It's a quiet ride, isn't it? But you know something's brewing. And the longer the ride is, the more painful it is. This meant that from the beginning, Jesus' mission was to accept the punishment of a crime he did not commit so that he could save a people who were doomed to receive the eternal wrath of God and transform their hearts. See, Jesus' mission was Peter's sin. Jesus' mission was your sin, my sin, your heart, my heart. And what's so interesting about this is that if anyone should have known his mission, if there was a single person who would have, should have been an expert in what Jesus was all about, it should have been Peter. If I could put it in modern terms, Peter was enrolled for three years in the most prestigious seminary of all, after Westminster. <laughs> Jesus Seminary. And, and yet when push comes to shove, he fails the final exam. He forgets everything that Jesus had lived, taught, and modeled. And what does he do? He draws his sword and he cuts the ear of Malchus. I mean, it would have made sense for Jesus to have second thoughts here and that, oh my goodness, I spent three years with this guy. You know what? You can take him. (laughs) I changed my mind. Peter and the disciples wanted a small Jesus. They wanted a political Jesus. Jesus wanted to give them something bigger. He gives them a servant king. In verse 11 we see a picture of Jesus' deep commitment to not just give what his disciples think they need and they want, but he gives himself to them as he is in order to secure the transformation of their hearts. In verse 11, we see Jesus preaching the gospel to Peter. Jesus lays down his life So Peter knows that what Jesus wants to give him is far better than what Peter wanted from Jesus. Likewise, for you, church, for you, Jesus desires to give you a gift far greater than what we often demand from him. See, Jesus loves you too much to not give you his true whole self. It is out of love that Jesus' mission is not to be your primary care physician. His main mission is for the healing of your heart. See, the gospel is not a cure for your cold. The gospel is a cure for your soul. The gospel is not a cure for your surgery recovery. The gospel is a cure for your anxiety and for your lack of trust in God's mercies. The gospel is not a cure for your aches and pains in the morning but rather the gospel is a cure for your heart's selfishness and sins. It's out of love that Jesus' mission is is not to be your life coach. His mission is not to bring you prosperity, but his mission is to bring you a promise. 
The gospel is not an algorithm for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but rather the gospel is an invitation for, to join Christ in death, service, and the pursuit of God's holiness. See, Jesus' mission is not to be your insurance agent. His mission is not to reserve you a ticket from earth into heaven. But his mission is for you to live today with Christ and bring heaven into earth. Jesus is not your spiritual nanny or your moral teacher. His mission is not to help you how to deal with your anger when your kids, the moment your kids start acting up. Or how to teach you how to be more patient. Jesus is not there just to change your behavior. To make you into a more patient person, loving person. But rather his gospel is to show you and for you to show people that you are just as broken and there's sweet delight in seeking his mercies. He's not there for you to build your own personal record of righteousness. He's there to give you his. Jesus' mission is for your heart to be transformed. For your heart to be transformed by the gospel and for him to be the thing your heart most desires above all else. And he gives his life in order that you may obtain him. Not virtues, not quality of life, but him. Let me end with this. There was a man who collected rare paintings worth a fortune as a hobby. And this man had a son whom he dearly loved. And this son was to inherit all of his father's paintings one day. But in 1914, at the break of World War I, his son was soon quickly drafted. And it was only a matter of weeks before someone knocked on the man's door, reporting that his son had bravely fallen in battle. And the soldier who delivered the news also hands the man a small painting that his son had made on a cold night in the trenches somewhere in France. The painting was sloppy. It had mud on the sides and some parts of it seemed unfinished. Nevertheless, the father frames this portrait with the most expensive materials and places it in the middle of the house so that everybody who came into the house would see that painting first. Years passed. And the man passed away. Since he had no other family, there was an auction held to sell his collection of rare paintings. Now collectors from all over the world gathered to this auction, hoping to get their hands on at least one of his precious paintings. The auction starts. The first painting is revealed. And the room bursts into laughter as the first painting for the auction is a man's son's painting. It was not worth much, so the bidding started at $10. 15 just to move things along. 20 All of a sudden, the house servant who stood by all the way in the back, who had known the son and loved him dearly, reaches down into his pockets and pulls out a $50 bill. Going once, going twice, sold, said the auctioneer. Auction over. And the room goes into confusion. What do you mean auction over? There are still hundreds of paintinglets over. We want those. To which the auctioneer replies, you are right. There are many things in this room you desire, but it was the last dying wish of the father that whoever possesses the painting of the son, then they should also receive his entire collection. 
Now, it may disappoint some of you to know that this story is not real. <laughs> However, friends, we have a better story. The Bible tells us that we have a great father who loved his son so deeply that he put all things under his feet. And this son had no inherent beauty that any should desire to acquire him. But this loving father has made all things possible so that anyone who possesses his beloved son, no matter who you are or what you've done, whoever receives a son is set to inherit all the riches and blessings of God. Pursue love, good. Pursue Jesus is greater. Pursue good life, fine. Pursue Jesus is greater. Church, May you claim your Savior, His righteousness. May you claim your Savior, His mercy, as He offers Himself to you as your greatest price. And you'll find that all other things follow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how precious you are. And yet we want to cheapen you by reducing you to what we think we need. Forgive us. And Holy Spirit, open our hearts to receive the terrifying yet comforting and loving embrace of Christ. May the gospel be sweeter. May Christ be our treasure. May Christ be our all. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's respond to him. Please stand. Worship and receive Jesus.